We will be in Luke chapter 8, verse 22 this week. And when you find that text, if you could please stand and join me for the reading of God's word. Luke chapter 8 and verse 22 says, One day he got into a boat with his disciples, and he said to them, Let's go across to the other side of the lake. So they sent out, and as they sailed, he fell asleep. And a windstorm came down on the lake, and they were filling with water, and they were in danger. And they went and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased, and there was a call. He said to them, Where is your faith? And they were afraid, and they marveled, saying to one another, Who then is this, that he commands even the winds and the water, and they obey him? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Be the title of our text this evening is, Who then is this? Who then is this? And as we uh, continue uh, in our study of the Gospel of Luke, and we've uh, picked up on that again as of last week. Um, it's always important to remember and remind ourselves of the, of the context of Luke, the argument that he is developing. Um, and last week we saw that he was urging his disciples to listen, to listen closely to the words that he spoke. And now what Luke's going to do is he's going to shift. And for the next couple of verses, the next couple of sections in Luke's gospel, he's going to make the argument that this listening, this message that Jesus delivers is not rooted simply in trusting his words. It's actually rooted in, in verifiable facts that have verified the identity that he claims to have. And this is going to be strange for us, and there are a couple of things that would be potentially dangerous for us if we come from the modern world, the modern lens, and look at these verses. There's a couple of things that we might bump into uh, in our worldview. Uh, the first danger that we have, and this is a danger that every single one of us has because we live uh, in the 21st century, is what we would call the naturalistic worldview. And the naturalistic worldview is dangerous to us because we assume uh, from Scripture that the real historical events, the things that we experience in our day as well, things like human conflict, uh, things like oppression by the Romans over the Jewish people, uh, things like that, those are, those are true. Those are part of the historical record. But the things that are more difficult to explain, the non-natural components of the account, such as the demonic activity or the miraculous healings that occur, or in this case, the, the miraculous calming of the, the natural world around Jesus, we assume that those pieces are a little bit more difficult to swallow. And so we attribute some things as being the real historical Jesus and some things as being uh, more allegorical or more spiritual, but certainly not actually having occurred. These are stories that the disciples meant and, and taught to their followers as a, as a moral boost, as something that teaches them about how they ought to live in the world, but certainly not as something that should be counted as historically relevant. And that's because we cannot repeat uh, these kinds of things. That's the very definition of the supernatural. And we live in a world where unless we can repeat it, unless we can reprove it over and over and over again, then we should not trust it. And for some things, that is the case, but for the miraculous, that actually uh, totally supersedes the definition. By definition, the miraculous is something that does not occur in nature. It requires the supernatural to intervene into it. 
That's one danger that we have. And that danger uh, is true from both the critics of the biblical text who would say that therefore we should ignore scripture because it clearly has a supernatural worldview, which we know is not true. Uh, But it also, I think, influences many biblical interpreters who would want to maintain faithfulness to the biblical text. And they would want to say things uh, such as, we we don't want to take these texts at face value, uh, that they actually occurred this way. We're going to look for natural explanations that would explain away the supernatural phenomenon described. So if you've ever read uh, the story of Moses uh, leading the Israelites across the Red Sea, Uh, You might know that there's a very uh, popular uh, kind of theory nowadays presented by some modern biblical scholars who've partnered with uh, scientists, and they've said, you know, this is really actually a possible thing. If Moses uh, timed it right, if the Israelites were exiting Egypt at the right time, if there was a strong enough wind and they weren't crossing the Red Sea, they were crossing this other portion of sea, then really what could have happened if the wind blew long enough, the ocean could have rescinded and they could have crossed over on dry land. It's really only three feet of water. It's not much of a miracle. And they're just internalizing this and using it to talk about their God. And so we, we're left with this naturalistic worldview. These are people who would want to uphold the veracity of Scripture and simply uh, explain away the things that are less comfortable to the modern mind. The other danger that we bump into in this text uh, is, is derived from this naturalistic worldview. But the danger is, is not one of denying the presence of the events in the text. The danger here, this is one that we come with who've grown up within the church, is the the danger of inserting ourselves into the narrative as the main thrust or the main crux of what is being portrayed. This is what we would call the the danger of spiritualizing the text or allegorizing the text. And this this is a danger that I think is very prevalent, and I've heard uh, many uh, many commentators read much study on this, where where the central thrust of the text is something to the effect of... uh, He calmed the storm for the disciples. He can calm your storm as well that you experience in your life. Now, I I don't want you to just take my word for that. So I have here a commentary that is done by one such scholar. And this commentator says uh, in these words, he says, and the real meaning of this incident, referring to what we've just read, is that wherever Jesus is, the storm becomes calm. And of course, he's not talking about a, uh, a tempest, something that actually raged in the water. He's talking about the storms of temptation that we might experience or the storms of passion, the the thrust of passion and and lust and temptation that we might experience or the storms of sorrow that afflict us, the relational conflict that we endure in this life. That's really what this text is getting after. And so that's, I think, a real danger because uh, if that's all that this text means uh, and that's what we use to interpret this text, then by the time we get to the resurrection, We're left with nothing except that when Jesus resurrects from the dead, that's a supernatural phenomenon. That does not happen. We know that. Uh, So what we're left with at that point is that he resurrected from the grave. You can conquer the things that afflict you as well. He he got out of the grave, and as as one person would say, and then he got into our hearts, and he lives and breathes through us. But they don't really mean that he's alive anymore. What what those commentators mean is that he's he's alive in, in idea. as the same way that Muhammad Gandhi lives on in in the teachings of his followers. And so there's there's two rival dangers to this text. And uh, we need to be aware of both so we can rightly understand what the text is getting after and rightly understand, well, what does it actually have to do with me? If it's not him calming the storms in my life, what what is this text getting after? And so uh, with those two dangers outlined, I want to approach this text once more and ask this central question, uh, the same question the disciples ask at the end of the text. Who is Jesus? 
Who is he? Because that is the question that is being answered by the unfolding of these verses. The first thing you'll notice in verse 22 of the text is that Jesus is the one who tells them to get up and go. He's the one who gets in the boat, tells the disciples to go ahead and cross the sea. And so it's his idea to go to wherever they're going next. So he tells them, let's go across to the other side of the lake. So they set out. And we're told that as they are sailing, verse 23, he fell asleep. Now, there's uh, much that we could say about this. What this does not mean is that Jesus is setting them up for waking him up. Uh, likely, it means that in his humanity, he's actually very physically tired. One of the things that is difficult uh, about us approaching the text of Scripture is we have this really confusing sometimes doctrine of the humanity and the deity of Christ. And how do these things work together? And we've seen earlier in Luke's gospel, the idea that he, he actually grew in wisdom and stature. And we had to spend you know, a whole week just on that idea of what does it mean for God to grow? What does it mean for the Son of God to grow? How can he grow in things? Is he either there or he's not? Is, his, is this his deity? Is this his humanity? We try to resolve all that. But here in the text, we're once again presented with the idea that Jesus teaching about his gospel, his kingdom, and then as soon as he's done with that teaching, he's going to set across the lake, and he's so exhausted from all day teaching his disciples that he's going to fall asleep. And we know what it is like, and I'm sure you've experienced what it is like to be so exhausted that you cannot stay awake. You can sleep almost through anything. And we all know that uh, a traveling ship or a traveling vessel is a, is a great place to sleep. I'm sure you can think of uh, the person that you know that uh, when, a, when a road trip happens and you set out in the car, uh, they are asleep as soon as you are on the highway and going straight. So we know this is not an uncommon thing. It's part of human experience, that we can get tired, we can become fatigued, we can fall asleep. And the text is telling us in a very real way, it's not trying to uh, scoot these details to the side, it's telling us that Jesus is capable of sleeping. And this is balancing against the other things that he's capable of doing, and the text will get to that later. But it doesn't want his miraculous events to squash his humanity. The text is balanced in its reporting of these things. So Jesus falls asleep. And while he's asleep, they're traveling uh, in the evening time. We pick that up from Mark's account, that this is likely happening uh, in the night. And there's a windstorm that comes down onto the lake. And the windstorm is told in rapid fashion to be already filling them with water, and they're already aware of the danger that they're in. All of that in one verse. Falls asleep, a windstorm erupts, and they're aware of the danger they're in. It's very succinct telling of the story. And where we might look for extra details, uh, and we might, we might try to be aware of what's going on, the text is telling us what's going on. That there's a dangerous storm that has erupted on the sea. And we might, uh, we might look at these verses and we might try to come up with some explanation. Uh, and some people have, have looked at these verses and said, well, um, this is a, a demonic storm that's been kicked up. And we know that because we see that Jesus rebukes the storm in the same way that he rebukes demons. He tells it to be silent, be still, just as he does with demons. But I don't think that the text is telling us that Jesus is rebuking the storm because it's a demonic storm. Uh, in fact, there's much evidence, despite the fact that the rest of the account is miraculous, there's much evidence to suggest that a storm like this is actually commonplace on the Sea of Galilee. Now, I'm not going to go into all the details of the mountains and the, and the heights and lows and elevations. Uh, suffice it to say that the topography of that lake is such that the wind can kick up a mighty storm in a short period of time. It's actually well known and well documented even today to do similar kinds of storms. What we're told, though, about this storm is that it's not a, a small storm. It's not a small event. It's actually a pretty significant storm. And we know that because the seasoned fishermen who are in the boat are scared for their lives. 
Now, this does not mean that it's a supernatural storm. We know that even natural storms today can wipe around whole coastsides. So it's, it's not a, a marvel to us that a natural phenomenon could do something like this. But that is where the natural explanation ceases in this text. It's a natural problem, not a demonic problem. And it stops, and we're left with the question, well, uh, how, is it, how is it going to resolve? And so in verse 24, we see that they go and they wake him. And they wake him with these words, Master, Master, we are perishing. And at this moment, I need to pause and say that if you were to read this same account in, in Matthew's gospel and in Mark's gospel, every time they wake Jesus up, they say, they say something different. And so we could resolve that, well, that's because these are made-up, fabricated stories, and so that's why they conflict. Or we could resolve that there's more than one disciple on the boat, and they're probably all trying to awake him by saying something different. Uh, one account that Luke records here concisely summarizes their statements by saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. And the other accounts summarize from their perspective what was said by the apostle who passes down that story. This is not a, a refutation of the gospel's coherence, but rather just telling us that these are real people who said real things, and they didn't all speak in unison like a chant when waking him up. They woke him up in frenzy, and they probably were all communicating differently their fear. And here in Luke's account, he records the master, master, we are perishing. And notice the, the rapid nature at which the rest of the details unfold. He awoke, he rebuked the wind and the raging waves. They ceased, and there was calm. If this was a modern story, if this was a, a legend that you would have read um, uh, in, the, in the Roman times, the drama of this uh, encounter would have been the longest part of the story. Uh, when you read a story today, the, the climax of the story often spans several chapters of unfolding drama. There's much detail, much, uh, much action, much events. The Gospels don't read like dramas. They read like eyewitness accounts that simply relay the information as it was told. They don't give us a lot of details where we want lots of details. We're simply told that he wakes up, he speaks to the winds and waves, and as a result of him speaking, him rebuking them, they are still. Now this is a miracle. And while the earlier storm has a natural explanation, the topography of the land, you are never going to find a natural explanation that can, that can drum up together how the wind calms down and the water calms down and they do it together. When the wind ceases in a storm, the water will blow for several hours longer because it has momentum. It's a basic uh, principle of the universe. That momentum is a thing that's embodied in water. You can try this if you take a cup and you slosh it around. You could stop the motion of the cup, but the water carries forward. So how then, when the wind stops, does the water stop as well, and both stop simultaneously, and the sea is calm? How is that possible? Well, it's a miraculous event. And this miraculous event has particular meaning to a Jewish person. And this is why we need to always remind ourselves of the context in which scripture is accorded. When the biblical authors write, they don't write to a 21st century audience. It's beneficial to a 21st century audience, but they write primarily to a first century audience, a Jewish audience. And the Jewish individuals to whom they write would have picked up immediately on the significance of Jesus calming the wind and the waves. Because in Jewish theology, the only deity who can do something like this is Yahweh. 
And you don't need to take my word for it 100%. There's many Old Testament references to this idea, and I want to spell out these references a little bit. But for now, I just want to read one of those texts, and it's in Proverbs chapter 30, verse 4. If you'll turn there and look at it. Proverbs chapter 30 and verse 4. And remember, this is written to people who would understand the significance of what's going on. Proverbs uh, chapter 30, verse 4, reads like this. It's a question and answer format. Who has ascended to heaven and come down? Who has gathered the wind in his fists? Who has wrapped up the waters in a garment? Who has established all the ends of the earth? What is his name and what is his son's name? Surely you know. Now, the reason the author of Proverbs writes this is because to a Jewish person, the answer to all of these questions is obvious. He says, surely you know in conclusion to all these questions. It's it's Yahweh. He's the only one who can do these things. Yahweh has ascended to heaven and come down. Yahweh has gathered the wind in his fist. We're told that in Job as well. Yahweh has wrapped the waters up in a garment. He is in full control of creation, and he's established all the ends of the earth. There's only one person in Jewish theology that does that. Now, that's very different from the theologies of the the, uh, Romans, who have many different gods for different natural phenomena. But for a Jewish person, this is only attributable to one deity. And so when faced with the supernatural events of this text, uh, a Jewish person, the disciples, would would only really have one solution to this. And that's, that's brought out in the question that they ask. He says to them, where is your faith? We'll get back to that question. But notice what they ask of him. Verse 25, who then is this, that even that he commands even the winds and the waters, and they obey him? Who then is this? That's a good question for a disciple to ask. Now, we might look at the disciples and say, well, Jesus has told us you know, a couple of other times about who he is. He's already cast out demons. He's already healed uh, people of their physical ailments. He's already done all these things. Um, why is there still a question about who he is? especially from the disciples. Why are they asking this question? Well, uh, we remind ourselves of a few things. One is that the disciples are humans, just like we are. And so just because they make one theologically sound profession does not mean that in moments of terror and moments of crisis, they're going to maintain that same profession because they're humans. And so when they're encountered with the theology of who God is in more calm circumstances, like facing off against the Pharisees or him healing someone miraculously, It would be one thing for the disciples to learn from that and understand it and cognitively reconcile that. He can forgive sins. That's that's something special, right? But now, when faced with a storm, the circumstance has challenged their theology, challenged the identity of Jesus. And then he does something they did not expect him to do, which is to directly calm the storm. And then they ask that same question. Who then is this? The reason they ask that question is because they kind of know the answer, but the answer itself is significant for them. The answer itself, for a Jewish person, uh, is, is excluding every other category of prophet, every other category of leader, and leaving only one standing, God himself. And for a Jewish person, that is a significant realization. Now, to spell this out, uh, we might say that, well, I can think of events in Scripture where someone has called something supernaturally. And it is true that there are other recorded events in Scripture 
that tell us about the prophets or the leaders of Israel doing supernatural things like this. I just want to go over a couple of those things. Just draw them to your mind. We're told of Elijah in James chapter 5 that Elijah is a man just like we are. He prayed, and when he prayed, it, it, it stopped raining. When he prayed again, it rained again. But what we're told explicitly in James and in the telling of that event in the Old Testament is that Elijah does not stand over creation and tell it to do things. He has to pray and then wait to see if it happens. There's a delay between him asking and the thing happening because Elijah has to pray to Yahweh who can actually do that thing. Moses as well in Exodus 14 when he's parting the sea. Moses doesn't part the sea. Moses is told by God to hold his staff over the sea and God parts the sea. It's made explicit in the text that it's not Moses who's doing this. The the power is Yahweh's. Paul in Acts 27 is caught in a storm and he's an apostle but he doesn't possess the power to calm the storm. In fact, he has to be visited by an angel who encourages him that he'll actually survive the storm, and that gets him through the storm. But he doesn't possess power to stop the storm. And one of the most famous uh, prophets in the Old Testament, Jonah, is uh, we're told he's caught in the storm as well, and he can do nothing for the storm except throw himself over the edge of the boat. And so there's no prophets who can do these kinds of things, Uh, Not directly, not in this kind of way. And this text in Luke does not try to tell us that Jesus prayed to God and then God resolved the winds and the waves. It it personifies Jesus as having the power of God. Not through prayer, not through through, uh, personhood, as though he he is an ambassador for God in this world. Right now we're told that Jesus commands the winds and the waves in the same way that God in the Jewish theology, commands the winds and the waves, and indeed all of creation. And that is a striking realization. That's a level higher than demonic exorcism. That's a level higher than healing the sick and the lame. That's a level higher than claiming to forgive sins. This is a really high level of power. And the disciples get that because they ask the question, who is this? Uh, we might be, we, we might, on initial reading, not, not be so aware of all these implications, but that's why we're taking time to draw this out. When they ask that question, it's because there's only one person categorically in their minds who it could be. But that answer is a fear-inducing, an awe-inducing answer. Notice they're afraid and they marvel when they ask that question. Because the answer, which is obvious to them, is also an answer that is frightening and awe-inducing. And that's strange, because in other places in the text of Luke, even, we've had Peter be afraid because he might be in the presence of an ambassador for God, a holy man. The other time that Jesus does a natural miracle over the fish in the lake, he calls the fish into the nets. And Peter's afraid then, but this same Peter is now more afraid, more awe, more uh, blown away by what has occurred. And so if, if the disciples who are the first eyewitnesses of these events are blown away, we as readers should, should key in on the significance of their responses. Because their responses tell us a lot. And they get it, because they ask that question. And you'll notice that the fear that they have of the storm initially shifts to a fear now that they have in the presence of Jesus. Because if it is true that he is who he has just proven himself to be, then the right response of a Jewish person is to be afraid, 
is to be in awe, is to marvel. And we can look at the Old Testament and see every time someone has an encounter with God, they are left afraid, they are left on their knees, they are left in worship. They're never left in a casual state after that encounter. And so the disciples here respond to Jesus in in awe and in amazement, not in a cavalier kind of way. And we might ask ourselves the question, why does Luke include these events here in the text? Why does he include them after this teaching about the kingdom? Why does he include them after the incessant need to hear? Well, he's now backing up his claim. You need to hear, you need to listen, but don't take my word for it. Let me tell you about what I heard, what I recorded, what I followed closely when I investigated. This is the first-hand account of what happened. And here is the account. This Jesus not only teaches these things, he also has control over the winds and the waves. Luke, the historian, is now making a supernatural claim. And our naturalistic worldview impedes into it. We're more comfortable with the teaching. We're more comfortable with the bear fruit, live a good life, those kinds of things. We're less comfortable with the idea that we need to be in awe and amazement of this God who has supernatural control over the forces of nature. Now comes the question, well, um, why is it that he rebukes nature? Why is nature out of line? The scripture answers this. In the fall, in Genesis, we're told that nature gets out of order as a result of the fall. That when Christ comes into this world, he doesn't just come to redeem humanity himself. He comes to redeem all of creation back to himself. And in creation, creation is created perfect. But creation is something that is uh, broken as a result of sin entering the world. So when Jesus calms the storm, he's the same God who can calm creation. He's the same God who from the beginning created this thing and has autonomy over it. So he is the the miraculous God. And not only are the Gospels filled with these accounts of the miraculous, but if if this hurts our sensibilities, we'll we'll be just as uncomfortable with Genesis 1 that tells us about the miraculous creation of the world in six days. We'll be just as off-put by an exodus when Moses parts the Red Sea miraculously by power. Not Not something you can explain. We'll be surprised when Joshua stills the sun uh, in the historical books. In fact, all of Scripture, uh, Genesis, Exodus, all the way through the historical books, into the prophets, and even into the New Testament and the Gospels, contains the account of the miraculous happening as God impedes into the world. So there's no uh, right understanding of Scripture, no faithful understanding of Scripture that can do away with these miraculous accounts and only believe the parts that we like to believe. We know that because if we try to carve out the miraculous of all of Scripture, we're really left with not much else. Maybe a couple of genealogies, and that's about it. But the miraculous is is everywhere in the text. So they ask that question in response to the miraculous thing that they've just seen. But what's interesting is not just their conclusion about who he is. What's, What's also interesting is the second, or really the first question that's asked, we're looking at it second now, which is the question Jesus asks to them, where is your faith? Now, if you were reading Mark's unfolding of these events, uh, that question makes a lot of sense. Because in Mark's account, they say, don't you even care about us? So he could rightly ask, where's your faith? But in Luke's account, they wake him by saying, master, master, we are perishing. And so it seems to me that the disciples did something appropriate in approaching Jesus with their fear. And so his question is is a puzzling, it's a perplexing question. Because, you know... He, he seems to expect them to have a different kind of faith, a different expression of faith than the one that they, they actually went to him with. 
And I don't know if that perplexes you very much. It perplexed me a ton this week. When I was thinking about this question, why does Jesus ask them about the content or the quality of their faith? Because before he asked that question, to me it seems as though they've done everything in accord to how they should do it. They were afraid of their circumstances. They took it to Jesus. He dealt with their circumstances. But then I'm reminded of the fact, one, is that when Jesus says it, it has to be true. And that's a good hermeneutic to have in place. But the other thing is that what Jesus is saying about their faith is, is not a wholesale condemnation of them approaching him. So there must be something in the way in which they approached him that signified a lack of faith. Now, what could that be? Using his question about their faith, we can look back at what they say. In, in Luke's account, he records, I think, I think an evidence of their, their doubt, which is the, the active uh, tense statement, we are perishing. It's not a problem that they were afraid of the storm. It's not a problem that they awake Jesus. It's not a problem that they cry out to him in duress. It's a problem that they just simply inform him, we are perishing. They have an, an active, almost resignation to the circumstance. I think in that is their lack of faith. Now we might say, well, the disciples don't have any precedent before them to know that Jesus is going to calm a storm. Uh, to them, he's a teacher. To them, he's a prophet. You know, right now, he's not totally uh, sealed up on the deity. He's still teaching them all these things. But faith is never a blind faith. Faith is, in Scripture is never something that we just uh, close our eyes and, and put our rationality aside and we jump into faith. It's never something Scripture asks us to do. In fact, Scripture you know, makes a very reasonable and succinct case for why faith is a very, a very right and, and simple thing. That doesn't mean that faith is something that comes naturally to us, but scripture just tells us it's not an irrational thing to have faith. And we, we sometimes see the, the modern world, and you know, if you're growing up, uh, when I grew up, the, the kind of common juxtaposition was there's a difference between reason and science and evidence, and there's a difference between that and faith. Faith is of a different quality, a different substance. But in scripture, faith is something that always has precedent before it. Faith is never something that the Jewish people are called to, if they don't have a reason to have faith. Faith is not something scripture asks of us if we have no reason or basis for that faith. That would be to close our eyes, to close our reason, and to jump blindly into the abyss. That's not the kind of faith we're supposed to have. Scripture tells us that the faith that we ought to have in Jesus, the faith we ought to have in Yahweh, is faith that has precedent before it. Now for the Jewish people, you can think about their first encounter with God post-Exodus, is not him simply asking them to follow him, but he first leads them out of captivity through a series of supernatural events and then calls them into the desert and says, follow me and obey my commandments. He first shows them who he is, gives them a grounding and a foundation of his character, and then asks of them to trust in him, that he will oversee them, that he will protect them, and they need to follow his laws. Same thing with Adam and Eve in the garden. When God creates the world, he creates Adam, and then he supernaturally, out of Adam, creates Eve, and all this goodness, and then he asks of Adam, obedience. It's not an unprecedented faith. It has a reasonable, logical follow. Same thing here in the Gospels. Jesus does not simply lead them into a storm as the first of his events. If you remember, he first teaches them about himself, and he's done a couple of what we would say are lower-tier kind of miracles, the healing of someone from a physical ailment, the, the bringing of fish to them when they didn't have any. 
he's already done some miracles that give him precedent for the fact that he, he might actually have something worth believing in. And he's simply taking them further and further out onto that trust. It's not a blind faith. It has precedent. But it, it is faith because it does require a, a, a certain deal of trust in the current situation that what preceded is still in effect. It's the kind of faith that failed them when he was being crucified because they, they scatter, they run away. Not because there's no precedent for him having control. In fact, he teaches them several times that he's totally in control of that situation. But nevertheless, their faith fails them. Not because he is expecting a blind leap of faith, but simply because they lacked faith. He's given them plenty of precedent, they just lack faith. So here then the question is, well, what kind of faith is Jesus going to expect of his disciples? What would an appropriate response in the storm have looked like if they had faith? Well, rather than just inventing or concocting the story again and, and imposing what I think faith looks like in this text, I want to lead you to a text that you can reference later, but it's the, the text of Daniel chapter 3, verses 16, 17, and 18, where we're told of the faith of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in captivity. When they are told to bow before foreign deities, and they say, no, we will not bow. And, they, and they're told by Nebuchadnezzar, you will be then thrown into a fiery furnace. They say, this is their faith coming through as a model example of faith. They say, we will not bow and our God will not hand us over. But even if he does not rescue us from this fire, we are not bowing to your gods. There's a, a mature kind of faith there which says we trust for deliverance, but even in the absence of deliverance, our faith is not going to fail that's an interesting kind of situation. That's a mature kind of faith because the apostles, they actually, after the resurrection, have that same kind of faith. Sometimes they trust in bodily deliverance in the moment, but even if they are given over to death, their faith does not fail. And for many of them, that means they're going to be martyred. And so the meaning of this text, going back to the earlier kind of common interpretation, is that he got us through this storm, you got the disciples through this storm, you can get us through our storms as well. That's not the teaching of the text, because if that is the teaching, if that is the promise, this promise fails. Because this is a storm the disciples are led through, but most of them are, are murdered. Most of them are brutally killed. And imagine them telling this message to themselves that Jesus will deliver them from this storm as well, because he delivered them from the previous storm. That's not what the text is teaching. The text is teaching us about the identity of the God who's actually reasonable to believe in. And he's calling us to faith in that God, and that's a faith that can hold on to the other promises of God that are taught to us in Scripture. Which is that in the storm, it's okay, because you're with Jesus. Jesus is sovereign over the circumstances. He's sovereign in the suffering. He's sovereign in the position. And that doesn't mean that he's going to rescue you from every situation. He's going to deliver you from every felt circumstantial need. But what it does mean is he's still God. His identity has not moved. And so that, that's a faith that works. If you're being delivered, you can attribute that to God and his deliverance and his sovereignty. And if you die of a terminal disease that you were suffering from, God is still sovereign. God is still in control. A simple faith, a, a smaller faith, would demand of God a solution to the problem in order for faith to be had. That's the problem with the disciples' faith, is they demand uh, resolution, they demand salvation before they're willing to put their trust in him. And so we need to learn from that by the teaching of this text. 
Jesus is not teaching that he's going to get us through every single storm. What he is teaching, though, is that he is sovereign over the storm because it's in his identity, it's in his character. That the suffering of this storm, the, the complete chaos, the seeming randomness, is not beyond the scope of his control. And that's an identity marker of Jesus. It's his identity. He is Yahweh in, in sovereign control over all things. It's not as though he's in a power struggle with nature and a power struggle with Satan and a power struggle with the demons. Every account in scripture tells us that he is the clear victor in all of these things. But that does not mean that in every situation he is resolved to deliver his people. Sometimes for his purposes, he actually permits them to pass through the suffering, through the trial, through the pain, even unto death, as many of the apostles experience. Even unto death, as many of the early church experience. That persecution that they faced is not something that deterred their faith. Rather, it's something that forced them to ask the question, do we really believe in the identity of Jesus? The circumstance here, the storm, causes the disciples to wrestle with the question of who is Jesus? And a mature faith latches onto that as the understanding of the text. His identity is what the text is teaching us. It's teaching us that he is God, he is Yahweh. And if that is true, then whatever the circumstance, for a Jewish person, no problem. I'm with Yahweh. I can be in the wilderness. I can be facing temptation. I can be in the pit of suffering. I can be told I'm going to be thrown into a furnace. I can hold on to faith for deliverance, but even if I'm not delivered, it does not cause my faith to fail. So for us, it's, that's a very relevant thing. We're not disciples, we're not Jewish, but this is the God, not of the Jewish people alone, but also <laughs> the Savior and Redeemer of all the world. Which means that that salvation by his grace extends beyond the Jewish nation, beyond the disciples, into the Gentile nations, of which we are a part. And that identity of Jesus is true also for the Gentiles. You read through Isaiah, the promise of redemption is not just for the Jewish people, but the Egyptians get to partake in it, the Philistines get to partake in it. There's many nations that get to partake in his redemption. And because we stand downstream of that, knowing his character, his identity, and seeing that helps us to hold on to that truth in the midst of whatever circumstance, trial, and suffering we might face. The things in our life that cause us to have fear, the, the storms that we experience, are, are not things that are small inconveniences. But there are significant things of suffering that we experience in this life. We might experience deep financial hardship. And that might cause us to have fear, to have doubts, to question God's goodness. And when that happens, the question of faith is, well, are you going to trust on the precedent of who God's character is, who he's revealed himself to be, or not? Is, is the circumstance going to drum up in you a fear that supersedes your fear of God? Or is the fear of God going to maintain its right position? And you're going to trust in him despite that circumstance. This might be true of, of sufferings of health, of, of which we are terrified in the 21st century. Suffering terminal illness, painful chronic illness. Those things can cause real serious doubt to creep into our minds about the identity and the goodness of God. And you'll notice that those circumstances ought to drum up these questions for us, but a mature faith not only recognizes the question of identity, but it actually can respond to it appropriately. No, no, no. Scripture has told me who Jesus is. I have precedent for believing in him. We might have significant relational strength in this life. 
We're actually promised in Scripture that we will experience relational strife, not only in our relationship to Jesus, but simply because the world is broken. And that can cause real significant doubt about our identity, our security, our place in this world. And when that suffering and circumstance tests our faith, we're not promised that we will be delivered from it and it will be happy sunshine in this lifetime. But we are promised that Jesus is still who he is. And that he is with us in that circumstance, with us in that situation. Not always to deliver us from the situation, but sometimes to be with us while we suffer in those circumstances. A mature faith will recognize that there's no circumstance in this world that can shift our confidence away from, from God. That's why you'll notice the teaching of this text that the disciples are afraid of the circumstance and then accuracy, who Jesus is, what he can do, they're afraid of him. It's not really that Jesus calms the storm and he just instills fear in the disciples that's beyond the fear of their circumstance. And not an undue fear because God is holy. That's, that's a real good theology by the disciples. They are afraid of the holy God. And it's a fear that's deeper than the fear of the circumstance because the circumstance of unholiness that humans experience is a, is a deeper, a more profound, and a more common, in fact, it's a universal experience that we have in our humanity. Some of us might not experience crisis of health in this lifetime. We might not experience uh, financial crises. We not, might not experience relational crises. But the crisis of our unholiness in the presence of the holy God is a universal experience in the human condition. And you notice that in this text, that is the, the ultimate marveling of the disciples. The recognition of the holy God in their presence causes fear and awe and inspires within them a kind of reverence. Not a kind of cavalier uh, reverence, but a real reverence for Jesus. And this is, this is an interesting idea because I, I mentioned earlier the promises that we would believe in. But we don't want to have small promises that aren't promised to us in Scripture like he'll deliver us from every storm. But we, we are told of real promises that, we're ha- that we have in Scripture, uh, which is that if all who believe in Christ Jesus will be saved, that's a real promise we have in Scripture. That's an assured promise, also rooted in his identity. And so we don't want to shortchange promises that aren't really there, but we also don't want to ignore the promises that we are, in fact, given. God is for us who can be against us. There's nothing that can separate us from the love of God. If, if we are faithless, he remains faithful. Real promises that scripture assures us of. Not the least of which is the fact that if we die in this lifetime and our bodies fail, fear not. For we are assured by him through his resurrection that he will give us a new body because he is the first fruits of all those who will be resurrected. We have assured promises in the text of scripture that supersede one circumstance, one trial, one suffering, and deal with the ultimate problem of sin and brokenness that we all have. And that's not just a, a spiritualizing of the text. That's, that's the true problem the disciples have. Their problem ultimately is not a storm that they're caught in that challenges Jesus' identity for them, but their ultimate problem is that the fact that they are rebels against God. That's the reason that they flee the Holy God. That's the reason why when he shows his transcendent face to them, they are struck with fear. It's ultimately the reason why they're so shaken when he's betrayed and crucified. Is because if he's not God and he can die, that's a real, real problem for the disciples. 
And when he resurrects, it's why they're so fervent in their evangelism in the book of Acts. Because there's a real assured promise in his resurrection. There's a real thing that we have to hold on to. And that's an abiding promise. That's not one that's limited just to the disciples. That's one that expands to anyone who believes in Jesus Christ. All who believe in the Lord will be saved. Everyone who professes with their mouth and believes in their heart will be saved. And we are given those real assurances, not as blind things to believe in, that we are simply uh, soothing our, uh, our consciences when we think of death, but rather we are having precedent in the past, believing by faith in an assurance that we have in the future. That's the rational, logical flow of faith. And that's what this text challenges in us, to ask this question that the disciples ask, who is this? And when coming to the answer of that question, it has implications. If he is God, well then, what does that leave us to respond to? Because when Luke establishes his identity, he's not going to stop there and then Jesus is going to ascend. There's going to be certain things that need to take place before his ascension, such as the dealing with wrath and sin. And those are things that we as readers need to prepare ourselves for and pay attention to as the gospel unfolds. Because the ultimate conclusion of Luke is that if he is who he is, and if he taught what he taught, and we believe him when he says these things, that his resurrection and his crucifixion have profound implications, not only for the disciples, but also for all of us. That we are called to live in obedience. We are called to have faith to the end. We are called to endure and to persevere. And we are called, with his disciples here, to have a kind of faith that does not fail, despite circumstance, despite suffering, and despite the many doubts that arise in our lives. That's the kind of mature thing that we're called to as believers. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word to us, particularly for the promises that we have that are yes and amen in Christ Jesus. We are sure by the encouragement of the Holy Spirit, by the assurance of your resurrection, and by the plain recorded events in your word, that we have a hope beyond the grave, we have a hope beyond this life, a hope that uh, will not fail, will not be torn from us, but one that we can believe in and hope in and have faith will be realized one day. Lord, we pray now for our weak faith, our failing faith that often struggles to hold on with any kind of consistency to these promises. Lord, would you be gracious to us? Would you be gentle with your people? Teach us, guide us, correct us. And by your grace, would you give us faith to believe? We may hold on to your promises. We may be once again renewed in spirit to believe on your son. And that we may live our lives in accordance with all that is taught in your word. Lord, we ask and pray these things in your holy name.